702 on 92.7 and 106 FM. Streaming on 702.co.za. The 702 app. And on DSTV channel 856. Good afternoon. It's six minutes past 12. Welcome to the Midday Report. My name is T.D. Madia, standing in for Mandy Wiener throughout this festive season. Lots coming up on the show. Three teenagers appearing before the Randberg Magistrates Court for allegedly gang-raping a 15-year-old. This is a story you might have seen. It did go viral on social media. Electricity Minister gives an update on the Energy Action Plan, as you heard there in the EWN update. Sanko in KZN backs former President Jacob Zuma's right to not vote for the ANC but says it'll continue supporting the governing party. Impala Platinum Wildcat strike is over and Dennis Bloom has responded to the former statistician general Dr. Padi Luhotla. He says calling for a postponement of the elections is not the answer. We'll also try and bring on Operation Dudula. They're saying they want Justice Sisi Khampepe recused from the Marshalltown fire inquiry. Remember, Advocate Tulani Makubela yesterday was recused from that panel. So they're saying actually Madam Chair, you deserve to go We'll try to bring them on the show. 072-702-1702. That's for your voice notes and your WhatsApps. If you have anything, any comment really on any of these issues. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. We start at the Randberg Magistrates Court where three teenage boys, I believe aged 17, are due to appear before the court over allegations of having gang-raped a 15-year-old girl. It's understood she was attending a party in Midrand when they attacked her. The matter was subsequently reported to the police. I think what makes this incident even more convoluted is that it's been trending on social media. I think I've come across clips where the supposed suspects are plotting to kill their victim, including confrontations between some of the parents and of the suspects and I believe family members of the victim. There was also a march to the Midrand police station. There's a lot of things that have been happening around this particular story. To discuss it with me, I'm joined by EWN reporter Alpha Ramushwana. Thank you so much. He joins us now on the line. Good afternoon, Alpha. Thank you for your time. Let's start with the background very quickly, Alpha. So three teenagers, two apparently handed themselves in and one was taken into custody by police. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's true, Tidi. Uh, but I've just spoken to the family of the girl and they've clarified what actually happened here. And, you know, the more they clarify this matter is. So what they're saying is that um, a 15-year-old was taken to the park um, in a gated community in Midrand or Waterfall, to be more specific. And when they got to that park, it's sort of a clubhouse. It was at night. Uh, that's when the sexual... Uh, or, or the alleged raping happened on a bench at the park. And uh, the family says they were surprised when the girl, the girl came back home and, you know, her, her shirt was torn, like she was crying. And that's when they knew that something um, had went wrong. But yes, the three boys are here at the Randburg Magistrate. But unfortunately, because, you know, this is a very sensitive matter, it's minors, uh, the media will not be allowed to attend uh, the court proceedings, but with the family members and some of uh, the people who uh, were involved here. Yes, of course, it is a matter that is involving minors. I imagine the NPA will give an update a little bit later as far as proceedings are concerned. But talk to me a little bit more about the people who are outside. You said now you've spoken to the family of the alleged victim. Are any family members of the alleged suspects also there? Have you had a chance to speak to them? And some of the people who've gathered outside the courts, what are their thoughts about what took place um, in, in, in Midrand? And also the clips, Alpha, that have been doing the rounds where a supposed plot to now kill the victim is part of the conversation. So, um, 
the, the family of the, the victim is here, her sisters and her father are here. The family of the alleged suspects are also here. However, we were not able or allowed to speak to them. And they were also uh, not keen to uh, speak to the media about what has happened there. I mean, we did see circulating on social media uh, over the past few days of the father to one of the alleged suspects uh, uh, defending his son. Uh, it, it looked like he was fighting with uh, some of the victim's uh, family members. So you can already imagine the relationship, the tense relationship between the victim's family and the, uh, the suspect's family. Uh, the organizations that are here this afternoon, uh, TD, uh, we have the ANC Women's League, a delegation of the ANC Women's League is here, and they are saying that they are here to defend uh, a, um, a young girl who you know, has been allegedly violated by uh, three young men. And we also have Not In My Name International. They've been uh, moving around. I've seen, that, seen them at a number of stories of this nature. So they do have a section or a unit which deals with uh, sexual violations of minors. And in my engagements with the sister, uh, the sisters of uh, the victim, they've told me that they are aware of um, clips of the suspects, um, allegedly the suspects plotting to kill her, and they do say that they can confirm that the voices on that clip are that uh, or those of the three boys who have been arrested and are going to appear today. So they are saying that they are fearing for their life, they are fearing for their sister's life, because they do know for sure that the voices belong to uh, those uh, three boys who have been arrested. All right, thank you so much. Uh, that's Alpha Ramushwana from EWN, who's out at the Randberg Magistrates Court, where three teenagers have been arrested and appearing over allegations of gang raping a 15-year-old old girl. I must very quickly apologize for that choppy network. I think there's always an issue around the courts as far as the network is concerned. But thank you so much for your time, Alpha. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. This year saw South Africa get its first ever electricity minister. Yes, wonders in the Republic never cease. And against all hope, we are now in December, yet the rolling power outages remain a feature of everyday life for South Africans. 17 years of load shedding, and this year, when Dr. Jose Nsura was appointed, we experienced 86% more load shedding than any other year. This is according to a load shedding wrapped report. This morning, Dr. Ramakopa held a media briefing on the implementation of the Energy Action Plan, the EAP. Let's first bring on Gloria, Gloria Motuere from Eyewitness News. She's joining me now in the studio. She was watching that briefing. Gloria, good afternoon. Thank you for your time. We haven't had load shedding over the past few days. I mean, I remember a voice note came through yesterday. Someone's like, I'm crossing fingers. It's unbelievable. I've not had power outages. I'm even wondering what's going to happen next. Has the minister explained why over the recent past few, I think days, I want to give it weeks, we've had some sort of a reprieve? Good afternoon, CD. Yes, you're right. It's literally been a full seven days since midday, since we haven't had load shedding. A first in a while, to be honest. And the minister was basically explaining what the situation is around that. And he was talking about the fact that there's been maintenance issues over the year and there's been a lot of units breaking down. But that has kind of been, they've been working really hard to try and work on that. And he was basically explaining the situation that's happening right now. So now I'm standing before you and I'm saying that number is at 12,200 megawatts. So the system is better off, is healthier by about 3,000 megawatts. So that's the performance of the system. Before I get to account on the issues on the demand side. So I think it's important that we have that appreciation. And it's particularly telling that on the 18th of December, for the first time in a long time, 
the amount of losses have gone below 11,000 megawatts. And thanks to Mr. Ngumalo and the exceptional team of uh, engineers at the various power stations, they have illustrated to us that it is possible for us to be come under 11,000 so that's Dr. Josien Turamukhopa speaking today. The core of the briefing, though, from your take, um, as far as the EAP is concerned, and how long this reprieval last. What is your sense from what you were saying? So what he was saying was basically that um, they've managed to kind of figure out a situation around one made planned maintenance and because they have ramped up planned maintenance that allows for the generating units to actually perform much better and that's why we haven't seen any load shedding in the last couple of days and the other thing he was saying that this needs to be frequent the main thing that he was emphasizing was the fact that it needs to be consistent because he was saying that this reprieve comes in bouts so we won't have load shedding now and then Two days later, there's like stage four, stage six, and everything is just getting <laughs> yes. out of hand. As it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was explaining that it's a matter of consistency from this point. But he was saying that he is confident that we might spend our festive season with the lights on. So that's good. <laughs> Only time will tell. Thank you so much for your time. That's Gloria Mutsuri from the EWN team who was keeping an eye on the minister's announcement earlier on an update on the EAP. But let's continue with that conversation. Let's bring in energy expert and economist Lungile Mashele. Lungile, thank you so much for joining us. I think I saw in the business day where you've calculated that the country has experienced about 332 days of load shedding and at a higher st- and at higher stages rather than ever before. We continue to grapple with power issues. Gloria just saying now that you know there's a bit of a reprieve, but um, anything can kind of happen. We suddenly back at stage four. Your sense of where we are and the minister's views really on the EAP announcement on the EAP. Good afternoon and thank you so much for having me. Um, So this year has been particularly difficult. 332 days of load shedding as of last week. Thursday, luckily there's been a reprieve for the last week. Um, We do not know when load shedding will return. It will be a factor. It will be, it will consider variables such as demand, um, if there's anything on the supply side, if any units trip. Uh, The minister did mention that they have, you know, high maintenance at the moment. I think it's sitting at about 15% is off due to maintenance, planned planned maintenance. Um, You also have any adverse weather that may happen, whether extreme cold or extreme heat affecting the plant uh, performance. So at the moment, I'm hopeful that we are going to get to at least to next week without any load shedding. Um, That's New Year's. That's New Year's. So we're going to cross fingers (laughs) and we enter into a new year on a positive note. Previously, you pointed out several issues that debilitated ESCOM. I remember you and I having a conversation about some of the internal and external factors, political will being part of what was the problem. What is your sense now? So I don't think that would have changed considerably. And going into 2024, it is going to be an election year. This is a very big uh, issue for the government of the day. And I'm sure they will be trying all sorts of means to sort it out. The problem is, this is not a two-week-old issue. It's a 15-year. In fact, in two weeks' time, it will be a 16-year-long issue and there has been no political will to try and sort it out we currently have four ministers who are responsible for ESCOM, there's a new CEO who's coming in or on before you know March, um, there are various interventions but we're not going to see any positive change in the short term in essence 
And just very quickly, on the minister himself, you know, um, I recognize that there's a new CEO and you've spoken now a little bit about um, Dan Morokani coming into the picture. But Jose Nturamukhupa himself, you know, he is appointed. We're told about him in February. He's then appointed the following month. So it takes really long for him to actually be given his position. Then there's an issue of powers, which yeah. by and large has not ended. We've seen him doing endless tours of power plants and the likes. Your sense of the minister and whether or not we're still looking at what is what many feel like is a PR exercise. I mean, he updates us weekly, but um, your sense mm-hmm. of who this man is, who still doesn't have access, mind you, to the and needs to communicate via the primary shareholder representative, which is the Minister of Public Enterprises, uh, Praveen Godon. So he doesn't have direct access still. Um, your sense of him and how he's fared over the year? So um, because of his limited power, we cannot really attribute any successes to him. Where he becomes very relevant, and this is something a former ESCOM CEO raised, saying that perhaps he should be made the board chair. Reason being, you still need a political principal who can coordinate things at cabinet level for ESCOM and for things to go their way. This is where he's been most powerful in the last year. And his position is definitely relevant in that regard. That conduit between DPE, between DIM. DMRE and within ESCOM itself. With the new CEO coming, he's definitely going to need Minister Ramakhopa there. And, and I certainly do not see a duplication of efforts, but I certainly see someone with that political power that will assist the CEO of ESCOM in getting things done. All right, thank you so much. That's energy expert, economist, Lungi Lamashela, speaking about ESCOM in the year that was in essence. You know, I remember speaking to Dr. Jose Nzora Mokopa a few months ago, just shortly after he was appointed. And he said to me, he's not naive. He understands the pressures that are on him. And while he cannot necessarily do what the NC is saying to everyone, that it will be finished, it will be done, over and done with by the end of the year, because they're looking at elections. He does, though, recognize that a governing party cannot necessarily go into elections with the kind of troubles that we're having as far as the power situation is concerned but hey only time will tell because this journey is better taken together let's walk the talk 702 hey my dear <laughs> regarding the alleged rape of the 15 year old girl that girl who took her to that place must also be involved included in this case but well this is south africa they are going to say they are underage they are going to be released under the care of their same parents instead of being sent to a reformatory school or reformatory home. That's why crime won't stop. They're going to be sent to go to their parents again. And they didn't even show remorse. This is South Africa. Thank you so much for that voice note. It is a difficult one. Um, they are minors. That is a fact on paper. And I do know that there's something about a friend who plotted. I mean, the story is actually quite scary. There's a part where I think Alpha didn't speak much about the parents, where, again, on social media, there are feuds between the different families over an incident like this. One would imagine when there is a rape allegation, it must be treated with the seriousness that it deserves. The brutality of the crime must be met by those involved on both sides, right? That it should be. And I think that's part of the problem um, that we have as a country is navigating moments like this and I suppose having your kids being alleged being the alleged suspects in a situation like this. Thank you for your voice notes. Please keep them coming. 072 0702 Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk.
South African National Civic Organization in KZN held a media briefing yesterday. So, Sanko is accusing the ANC provincial leadership of trying to bully it into charging former President Jacob Zuma for his public announcement that he'll be backing the newly formed MK party. We speak now to Sanko's provincial secretary, Sizwe Trele, who joins us now on the line from KZN. Sizwe, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. So, you are not part of the mass media briefing on Tuesday that was led by the ANC. You don't even seemingly share their sentiments on what ought to happen as far as the former president is concerned. Is that correct? Yes. Good afternoon, CD, and good afternoon to your listeners. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. Uh, yes, uh, what happened is when they invited us to come to the uh, meeting on the 18th of December, uh, at the very same time, we then see in the social media that there will be media briefing at two, which was going to be uh, reflecting on what you would have spoken about in the meeting, which was going to start at uh, at, 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 at at ten. As a POB of Sanco, a provincial executive committee of Sanco, provincial office bearers, rather, uh, we we then started uh, having questions to say how can we attend a meeting at 10. Already a, a, a media briefing has been scheduled to, pro, to report on what we have spoken about in the meeting. Who has said that even the media briefing is a solution for what we have spoken about? So from there, uh, we went to the uh, discussion at 10 to tell the leadership of the ANC that we are not going to be part of the media briefing because at Sanko, they should respect us, hear our views, if we are part of the alliance, we are not there just to be bullied by the ANC or even to massage the egos of the leadership of the ANC. Excuse we are an independent, mm. yes. You say that yes. they're forcing you to charge the former president. Help me understand that. Yes. What did they say as the leadership in KZN about trying to pursue charges um, on Sanko's part? Oh, no, no, no. It didn't get to a level where they said charge the president. But, you know, we are, we are in a meeting, we are telling them that we have no grounds of charging the president in terms of the constitution of Sanko. So the position of Sanko is the president, uh, of, uh, I mean, former president is still the chairperson of Sanko. Then they argue with us, arguing uh, based on our constitution to tell us that our constitution cannot say that because it means anyone can end up being a leader of Sanko, even someone from the IFP. So as us, as Sanko, we uh, uh, treated that as arrogance of highest kind to say, you can't tell us uh, as Sanko as to what our constitution must mm, say. How to run your operation. Mm. Even for the chairperson of the ANC, when he, when he uh, summarizes the meeting, you know, in terms of summarizing the meeting based on the, uh, on the input of the participants who were in the meeting, he comes up with something which says, uh, as far as they are concerned, no one should be seen speaking to uh, uh, former President Jacob Zuma. So we are like, what type mm. of uh, summary is that? Who said that in the meeting? So we can't then be seen be uh, going out with them and be say. Uh, uh, they're forcing a message on you. Yeah, they're forcing a position yeah, on you. Yeah, so just yeah. very quickly, help me understand. Have you reported this to the ANC at national level? Have you reached out to Efigil and Balula, for instance, to say, we have a problem with your leadership in the province and the way that they're managing this particular issue around the former president? No, no, no. We have not spoken to them about that. But what we spoke to, uh, comrade, uh, or rather, which we 
what we wrote to Comrade Fegil and Balula about, and also Comrade Kalema Mutlat, uh, happened some time ago, I think probably in October, when they were excluding, excluding Sanko uh, in the Provincial List Committee, because in terms okay. of the ANC guidelines, Sanko must sit in the Provincial List Committee, which will then assess people who will then be deployed to Parliament. Okay, I've run out of time. Yeah. I ran out of so time, but I just want a quick Manila, one. Yes. A very, very quick one yeah. before I move on, Caesar. There are issues about whether or not the former president is a provincial chair of Sanko or not. You are saying he is. His status is actually that he is the chairperson of Sanko in KZN. That's correct? Yes, that's correct. All right, thank you in so terms much. Of the Constitution, yes. All right, thank you so much. That's Caesar Trele from Sanko in KZN saying that actually they're not happy with the way the NC in KZN has handled this issue around the MK party and the former president who's come out saying that's who he'll support at next year's elections. Your voice, your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. I want to quickly look at this issue. You know, um, yesterday, or rather, yes, Operation Tutula, I remember I was just saying this yesterday, that this was supposedly a vigilante group that's turned into a political party that is now registered to contest in next year's elections. Well, it's now demanding that Justice Kampepe, Sisi Kampepe, recuse herself from the Usindiso building fire inquiry because of her political views. Of course, if you remember, yesterday Kampepe um, recused advocate Tulani Makubela as a commissioner because of his association and support of the group, Makubela was also found to have made xenophobic, xenophobic remarks on the social media platform X. I'm now joined by Isaac Lusole, who's the Deputy Secretary of Operation Tutula. Isaac, thank you so much for your time. Your objections to Justice Sisikampepe as Commission of the Chair. You say that she has political views. Help me understand what that means. Look, the, the, the thank you for having me. Uh, I think I think it's just it's just mischievous. Who stole the mayor, man? You know? Um, Who <laughs> stole, man? You, you can't do this. You can't, you can't take the, the views of an individual, uh, the views that are older than Operation Dudula. Operation Dudula was established officially in 20, 2021. But this guy has had views on illegal immigrants as far back as, 20, as 20, 2017. And you take his views uh, and and you affirm as a judge, a presiding officer, you say that Operation Dudula is. You now affirm that the Operation Dudula is is a vigilante group. That's silly because um, the only institution that qualifies to test that has the means test and empowered by law to make those kind of you know uh, um, statements is the Independent Electoral Commission. So if we passed the means test by the IEC, who is Judge Makubele to tell us that we, we are a vigilante group because we are, we are a competent and a credible political party that will be contesting elections next year? This is silly. Hold on, Emma Hanyani Isaac. So your exception is not necessarily to the ruling in total. Your issue is the mention and the involvement of Operation Tutula in her ruling. Is that it? No, 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 no. So, so we have a multiplicity of problems. Number one, uh, we have the we have a problem with the fact that she has uh, um, she has expressed and affirmed uh, her stand, uh, confirming what Siri Helen Susman Foundation has been saying all the time. She affirms that as a presiding officer. But we are saying that this is not is not the, the, the ruling is not based uh, on 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 law. Because uh, Advocate Makubel has got a right 
of freedom and a right of association. So on the basis of two, you can then say that uh, what he has expressed over a period of time, because it is clear that he's against uh, illegal migrants. And it, has, it is also clear that he's against the movement of people illegally, both inbound and outbound. So if you come and say that he is wrong to say that you are, you, look, what are the basis of that? Because the law says that the movement of people in and out of the country must be controlled. So the law uh, affirms what Makubela is, is standing for. And this is what Operation Dijula says. That and what we differ, what we differ with uh, um, uh, uh, Pepe with is, is the fact that she says that uh, um, uh, Makubela is wrong and she's doing, she's using her position as a judge to say that she affirms the position of these ones. You can't, you can't, it, it's illegal. You can't do that. It's wrong. After, in a few seconds, Isaac, please just tell me what steps are you taking as you seek to have her recused from the commission? We, we, so, so first we're going to request that um, because we've been mentioned so many times, we want to be a witness, we want to be put on the witness stand because people are talking about us without us. So we want to be on the witness stand. We also want particulars of all the, the, the transcriptions of, 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 of the case this far so that we can prepare ourselves as, as a witness. Okay. But thirdly, make sure that she recuses herself because her, her position is really ideological and not legal at all. All right, thank you. I'm going to leave it at that. That's Operation Tutula's Isaac, Lus- Isaac Lusole saying that they want Justice Sisikampepe recused as commission, as chair of that commission into the Marshall Town Fire. I apologize. I'm a little bit late. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. Hi, Didi. Good afternoon. Yeah, I know. This uh, Minister of Electricity sounds too, I don't know, sounds too good to be true, eh? And uh, we haven't had low shedding for a good couple of days. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be funny, but I think this is the calm before the storm. You know, when it's too good, you know what happens then. <laughs> anyway, great show. Cheers, John Kaljava. Bye. Good day at CDS Nomeni and Pretoria. I think uh, the Minister of Electricity or Kosien Zoromokopa, he can host a, a billion conferences press conferences but the fact of the matter he knows nothing about electricity he knows nothing about generation transmission as well as distribution of electricity i think that uh, the fact that uh, that Koko, his case was uh, was put on hold or was dismissed was struck off the roll i think the clear sign that the men uh, they, they they were they were chasing over a black cat in the dark. That the Mazela Koko should be reemployed at ESCOM to deal with, uh, uh, together with him, that um, Brian Mulef, I think. All right, thank you so much for your voice notes. I think John was the first voice note saying that it feels like the calm before the storm. I am just as anxious, John. I'm just as anxious. And yes, I do worry about what happens next with ESCOM. More of your voice notes, you can send them to 072-702-1702-072-567-1567. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk.
So miners from the Impala Platinum Mine have come up to the surface. So today would have been day four of the Wildcat strike. If it continued, demands were presented to management. They were rejected. I think NUM, I was watching them a little bit earlier on, saying that they'll continue engaging. But the union also said that some of the demands were simply not achievable. This was about the pension payouts, I think. So we are joined now by the, um, I'll just tell you now in two seconds, I'm joined now by Ernest Malibana, Mineral Resources Department spokesperson. Ernest Thank you for your time. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, CD, and good afternoon to listeners of Talk Radio 702. Thank you for your time. Ernest, the strike ending, right? I just want your sentiments. The strike has ended, but it's another illegal uh, strike. Not only that, but another one that takes form in a sit-in underground. The department's sentiments on this trend and, again, the continuous um, trend of phenomenon of the illegal strikes that are happening just as the air is about to wrap in the mining industry. City, we are gravely concerned as the DMRE about the underground sitting situations that appear to have become a trend lately in our minds. Um, these kind of sit-ins pose a very serious health and safety risk and could result in injuries and even loss of lives and this is undesirable. We do not want that as the regulating department. We, we therefore, of course, call on all parties to resolve whatever issues they are dealing with uh, as a matter of agency without compromising on the health and safety of everybody involved and doing so within the ambit of the law. I think you mentioned one way to try and manage these, and that's the parties to talk. But I'm also wondering what else could the could the department do? Because what I've also noticed is that the unions at time are often in the dark, completely in the dark about why their members have gone underground. I've asked unions sometimes, "What do you know?" And they'll say, "Oh, we're also taken by surprise." And I'm also seeing it happening at mines where NUM is mostly in, in the union in charge. Are you seeing the same thing? What are your observations and suggestions really beyond? just calling on parties to hear each other out as far as demands are concerned? Of course, the unions must uh, be able to engage with their employees or with their members, rather, uh, frankly and honestly on whatever issues that they have to deal with. But from the department side, um, over and above encouraging engagement, um, we are working with organized business and organized labor in amending the mine and health, the mine and health, mine health and safety regulations, rather, to prohibit uh, underground sitting situations. Um, the Mine Health and Safety Council Board had a meeting in November which uh, made the resolution that the regulations must be amended to make it a point that uh, sit-in situations are prohibited. And in the board, uh, they are representatives of the organized business and representatives of organized labor. At the moment, um, we are hoping we will have the amendment regulations uh, uh, gazetted for implementation uh, in the coming days or latest uh, second week of January 2024. And essentially, CD, we are calling the, uh, in the regulations that um, um, at the end of every shaft, every employee or person working on that, partic- on that shift uh, uh, underground must be brought to surface as soon as reasonably possible and shall not be kept waiting unnecessarily at the uh, shaft stations where they would have been uh, operating. And also, just quickly, SD, that uh, no, vol- no one should voluntarily remain or cause any other person to remain at the working place 
or any other place in the mine after the end of their uh, shift. Basically, everybody must come at the surface. And, and it's, I think one of the issues that the minister had raised was concern around um, closed shop agreements. Um, uh, yes, closed shop agreements and how that needs to be dealt with via the Department of Labor. Um, in terms of a timeline, is there is there one that you're looking at? I know you speak, spoke now about amendments. Is that part of that or is there a separate timeline or conversation that needs to take place there? So the, the regulation that I've just referred to specifically deals with mine health, mine health, health and safety uh, yes. regulations. So in terms of the closed shop agreement, as you have correctly said, it's a labor-related matter and it's regulated, of course, through the Department of Employment and Labor. But of course, as the regulator in that sector, we are in constant engagement with the Minerals Council, which represents organized labor and, of course, the organized, rather organized business and, of course, organized um, labor through unions to make sure that um, the industry is governed uh, openly and in a manner that doesn't compromise health and safety of anybody involved. All right, thank you so much. That's Ernest Mulibana, who's the spokesperson of the Department of Mineral Resources. I tend to go to Nogukanyam Dam, which is my mining go-to person here at EWN. And she said to me, you know, it's so predictable. It's a four-step process, if you may, what's been happening with the sentence. She says the first one, you have day zero where the planning takes place. Day, day one is when they all go underground. Day two, there's concern. Police are possibly called in. Should we call the police? So you see the mining companies fi- try to figure out what, they ought to do because their major safety concerns as Ernest has pointed out the Nogukanya says day three you start seeing some escapees from these settings where people are simply hungry and day four as you've seen they hardly ever get to or on that day they all surface because hunger becomes a factor they don't have enough resources underground to stay there but again it is a major safety issue it's the latest trend that we are seeing with these wild cat strikes but again the department says they are concerned it is worrying it is dangerous even the idea of police having to go and facilitate or manage a situation on private property is cause for concern. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. We turn our attention now to Gauteng Police. They've been carrying out their crime reduction strategy in Akuruleni today. They were in the West Rand in Kahiso to be specific last week. Today, Acting Provincial Commissioner Major General Tomim Tombeni and Senior Management from SAPS and other law enforcement agencies were out and about in Boxburg. This is where we find EWN's Tabiso Goba, who joins us now on the line. Tabiso, good afternoon. Thank you for your time. I tend to celebrate how empty my home province, Gauteng, is around this but I also know that criminals also celebrate what Gauteng looks like in December. Heightened police visibility is definitely a must during the season. Tabiso, I imagine the police who are out and about say that they also recognize that criminals take advantage of a quiet period in Gauteng during the festive season. Good afternoon, CD. Yes, that's 100% correct. And I think, you know, obviously the previous um, conversation that we just had about mining um, is sort of a great segue um, to obviously what we're going to be speaking about right now. We're right now at the Angelo Informal Settlement in Boxburg. You remember, CD, that last year around this time, 16 people died during a gas leak uh, by illegal miners. Now, we obviously share to check with police um, what is their progress on curbing illegal mining. And I can tell you, CD, that um, in a, in a stra- the Angela Informal Settlement is very much cramped. And 
it's not a very big area, but in terms of the areas that we've visited, we've seen at least about five or six gold refining illegal operations. So we even spoke to some residents, CD, saying that those conditions that led to 16 people dying um, in, in this informal settlement last year are still, around, are still here. Those illegal miners are still in this area. We also spoke to the MMC of Ekuruleni um, here for community safety, um, Councillor Sizagele. And we asked her that, you know, what is the municipality doing to ensure that we do not have another um, incident that killed 16 people last year? And this is what she had to say. The plan we had is to reblock the informal settlements so that we'll be able to put uh, the service deliveries, issues of uh, water and sanitation, issues of... Um, solar lights so that we try and minimize crime at night but it is um in a slow pace because uh, once you move one uh, the next person come and but we're still ongoing um educating our people that when one leave they must take ownership of these informal areas that once three shacks are moved away they mustn't allow another shack to come in because the place won't be uh, reblocked that's the voice of Kurileni MMC for community safety. Tzaykele Masuku, she's speaking to Tabiso Kob of EWN on the municipality's efforts since the Angelo informal settlement disaster last year that killed 16 people. He is out and about in Boxburg where the Chanela, Operation Chanela is currently taking place. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702. Proceedings on the bail application by a 21-year-old student, university student who has been charged for the rape and murder of a Joburg school teacher, Kirsten Kletz, has been postponed to next week, the 29th of December. I just wanted to go back to that story and try and wrap it up with EWN reporter Bernadette Wicks, who's been following that story. She joins me now in the studio. Bernadette, thank you for your time. Good afternoon. Yesterday, closing arguments were delivered. You spoke at large, really, about what the state had presented before the courts. But a quick summary from both parties, please. Mm. So, essentially, um, we must remember that these are bail proceedings, and so a lot mm. of evidence was placed before the court in these specific bail proceedings. But ultimately, the aim is for the defence to show that there are exceptional circumstances permitting uh, the accused to release on bail in the interests of justice because he's facing a Schedule 6 offence. So, ultimately, what the defence says is that the state has an incredibly weak case against the accused. Um, they maintain that even though they have CCTV footage placing him at the scene of that crime and even wearing Kirsten Clates' clothes that day, um, that at best all they have is uh, prima facie evidence for a charge of either theft and or defeating the ends of justice. They maintain there's no evidence linking him to the charges of murder and rape that he's facing. Um, the state has presented its case in the form of affidavits that were put up on behalf of the investigating officer in the case and also on behalf of an official from a private security company, 24-7 Security, that helped with this investigation. Um, and those affidavits basically detail the CCTV footage and the various pieces of evidence that they have against the accused. Um, and the state maintains that it has a strong case. It maintains that this evidence is quite damning. And actually, you, it's a good thing that you reminded us, reminded us that this is actually a bail hearing, bail application, because we focus so much on the merits mm. of the case, which have to be dealt with at a trial as it is. But his defense seems to be willing to go the extra mile if needs be to try and make sure he gets some a bail. I think they're willing to approach the NPA, the National Prosecuting Authority. Yes, they have indicated um, during closing arguments yesterday, his advocate, Utumaling Masako, indicated that um, he is planning on approaching the 
NDPP, Shamila Batoy, with representations, which are generally aimed at having the, the charges withdrawn. And he seemed to infer that the grounds that he would approach the NDPP were essentially that this case was so weak. He described it as a, a leaking tin, um, and he felt confident that he would be able to do that. And then just before I let you guys see another story that's been breaking today, mm. a 51-year-old KwaZulu-Natal man has been arrested after allegedly killing his mother and sister. He supposedly decapitated them and threw their heads in a pit latrine. Mm. Um, harrowing doesn't Absolutely begin to describe ghastly. what this is. Please just give me a little bit more. Just give us a little bit more uh, of an update on the story. Sure. So like you say, absolutely ghastly, ghastly, ghastly story. Um, it took place in the Midlands in KwaZulu-Natal early yesterday morning. Apparently police responded to a shooting. When they got there, they found the two women's bodies lying in a pool of blood and they had been decapitated. They were struggling to find the heads um, and they eventually found them in a pit latrine on the property, both these women's heads. And then last night they did arrest um, a suspect He's understood to be related to the deceased. It's understood that one of them is his mother and the other one his sister. He's supposed to appear in court in Richmond Magistrates Court tomorrow, but absolutely horrifying story. Mm, we'll definitely keep an eye on that story when it takes place tomorrow. That's Benedict Wicks from EWN giving us an update on the Kirsten Clates matter. And of course, the story that's coming out now, she said ghastly, harrowing story from KZN where a man has decapitated his mother and sister. Walking this talk together. Every hour. Every day. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. The Western Cape government says it's budgeted 16 million for the wildfire season. As you know, fires have been raging across parts of Simon's Town, with Cape Town Rescue at some point asking residents to evacuate their homes. They themselves also sustained some injuries battling the fires. We speak now to the Western Cape's um, Chief Director of Disaster Management, Colin Denier, who joins us now on the line. Colin, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tini. Colin, I've seen some predictions that this could be the worst fire season in years. Is that accurate? And if it is, what is this O2? Yeah, it's it's really difficult to to you know to make that assessment. But I think the the reason that we think we're going to have a very severe season, as you'll recall, we had a lot of rain earlier this year. Um, we had those two major floods in June and September, and we had literally about three to four months of of rain. So uh, what has happened is the the um, uh, growth in in a lot of the rural areas is is really um, expanded quite quite substantially. And although people would think that a lot of rain would mean you know that the areas are going to be mm. a lot more, that that's not really the case. If if you have the high temperatures that we have in the Western Cape in December January, and you have a lot of high winds like we're currently having, that dries out very quickly. And then, you know, fueled by the kind of winds as well as the fuel loads that we see. And that generally can contribute to quite a busy fire season. Mm. And then just to very quickly try and understand, Colin, um, there was a campaign that's launched. We're speaking now about the 16 million rand that's been budgeted. What does it go towards? What are the considerations and needs um, during managing such a season that the money would be allocated to? What are the considerations that must be taken and must be taken into account? Yeah, so the largest amount of or the biggest portion of that money goes to our aerial support. So we started a program about 11 years ago, which we call our rapid attack program. And that what that really is, is we contract uh, quite a large number of aircraft. So between ourselves, City of Cape Town, uh, West Co- the uh, Cape Wine District uh, and, you know, a couple of other organizations, we contract around 14 aircraft of different descriptions, which we place in different parts of the province. 
So the whole idea is that we respond as quick as possible. We don't, you know, we don't wait for a fire to get to a specific point before contracting aerial resources. Now, these aircraft are not cheap, you know, to, to mm. get them into the air is quite a bit of money. So a large amount of the, of the money goes to that. And then what we also contract is additional firefighters. And we also contract what we call specialized ground teams. And these are teams that you can deploy by helicopter into mountains. You can you know, have them stay overnight. They can work at high altitudes. Um, so really specialized people. There's also money that goes to training. So it covers quite a few areas, but the largest, uh, you know, by far, support. aerial support. Yeah. All right, got it. Thank you so much. That's Chief Director of Disaster Management in the Western Cape, Colin Denier, explaining that 16 million rand budget they are in their fire season. And as you've been hearing in the bulletins, the Simonstown fire had taken a turn at some point with residents then being asked to also evacuate their homes. Your voice. Your station. Let's walk the talk. 702. 702. I am fast running out of time, but I want to have this conversation. Yesterday, former Statistician General Dr. Padi Luhutla suggested South Africa must consider postponing the 2024 general elections. Instead, he says we need a society that takes back its power and a Kodesa-like moment for the country. Now, Dennis Bloom, who's now speaking on behalf of Activists and Citizens Forum, completely disagrees with this. He joins us now on the line to explain why he thinks that postponing the elections are not the answer. Dennis, thank you for your time. Welcome to the show. So you are saying suspending the elections is not the answer. Help me understand why, because you then make an argument that they should be moved forward. Uh, good uh, afternoon, Siri, and uh, the, the listeners. No, we, we disagree with that proposal, because in the first place, our country is in a very serious crisis, economically and politically. The, the, the country is standing still. We cannot have this government continue with uh, what is happening now. What we are saying is that the, 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 the government or the country must be placed on a state of disaster because nothing is functioning. You, you, you know, city uh, 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 that um, uh, consultants are running departments. You, 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 you look at safety and security, the police. Uh, 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 people must rely on private security companies to keep them safe. Dennis, to keep them safe. Dennis, now, uh, yes, Siri. Just very quickly, how feasible, I'll ask you the same question that I asked Dr. Parilu Hotla. How feasible is this idea? We are fast approaching the elections. You've got the May-August window for elections, and the IEC has already said it should happen at the most, po- the earliest time possible under that window. That's possibly May. How feasible is your idea of suspending the Constitution and trying to move in that direction? In under one minute, please. The people of this country can make it happen. If the people rise and say enough is enough, this thing can happen to put the country under a state of disaster. All right. Thank you so much. That's Dennis Bloom saying that South Africans must take a stand, that it's time for something different. Um, They all kind of agree that something must happen, but the the feasibility, the practicality of what they're suggesting, I don't know about. He speaks on behalf of Activists and Citizens Forum. Because this journey is better taken together. Let's walk the talk. 702.
Yeah, the hour is up. It flew right past me. Um, lots of stories to still follow. The issue of the teenagers who are being accused of a gang raping a 15-year-old. Um, you've got the story that just emerged now, a 51-year-old man who killed and decapitated his sister and his mother. Those are stories we'll definitely be following into the week. And, of course, we cross our fingers that the lights stay on.